I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 95, we have a little change of pace. That's right. So to make things a little bit more interesting, we've decided to start a new series that we plan to sprinkle in now and then, and that's biographical interviews with people in the conservative ecosystem, in the kind of world of conservatism. And obviously the vast majority of political podcasts are interview shows, and we've purposefully moved in another direction by creating our own content for each episode. And hopefully, hopefully folks like that. Uh, I think it's, I think it's been fun for us and that's still our bread and butter and we'll plan to continue on that road. But every now and again, I think we've we've noticed that all the interview shows are missing something that I think it would be interesting, and that is learning more about the lives and careers of the conservative faithful. And what I mean by that is sort of those who write for magazines or work on Capitol Hill or for advocacy organizations or trade associations or lobbying firms. So I think we plan to invite guests on to tell us their stories. We'll call them conservative stories. And just kind of share what conservative me- conservatism means to them and just kind of how they view the, the movement and the, and the ecosystem and where they fit. I personally think it'll be super interesting. We'll see what you all think. We'll do a few episodes and see where it takes us. And we figure there's no better place to start than with ourselves. So today, I'm delighted to interview our very own Kyle Salmon. Welcome, Kyle. <laughs> Thanks, Corey. Nice to be here. <laughs> you and I have become friends over the past few years, and I think it's high time we learned a little bit more about you. So I think we're going to have a little conversation here. Anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think that sounds great. It's, um, it, I think it's good to change things up, make things interesting, do different kinds of things, see what the audience likes. Um, so write to us, talk to us on Facebook, talk to us on Twitter, tell us. If you think this is great and you want to hear more interviews, there's you know plenty of people out there probably more interesting than us, and we'll we'll be glad to try and get them on. Uh, if you hate it, tell us that too. <laughs> just, you know, we're you know we're just out here trying things. So yeah, very cool. All right, well let's start then. So Kyle Salmon, what's your day job? What do you do? Well, I I spend most of my day editing these days because I'm. Uh, Senior editor at the Philadelphia Weekly, which is a an alt weekly newspaper here in Philly. We have a, a print publication and also online. And then I also edit at Broad and Liberty, which is uh, it's a news and editorial outlet uh, dedicated to just bring different opinions to local issues in Pennsylvania and, and especially in my part of the state around Philadelphia. And you know, besides that, I do I do freelance writing still too. So I'm you'll still find my stuff at the Federalist and. Washington Examiner and, you know, any place will publish me pretty much. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And it sounds like a real variety. So how did you get into, get into all that? Well, I was, uh, I guess I was just a dissatisfied lawyer um, <laughs> looking for something more interesting. I uh, I was in trust in the States until 08. And then when the market crashed, I got laid off and was doing 
different kinds of legal temping here and there, working on a lot of big litigation projects, uh, real boring stuff, but, you know, paid the bills, <laughs> but just deadly dull. Uh, I met some fun people and some of them are still my friends today, but it, uh, the job itself was, you know, real dead end stuff. So I was just, you know, I was always interested in politics. You know, I was a, I was a history major and I was involved in local politics when I was younger, you know, at a very low level. So I, uh, I just one day I wrote something up and I sent it to Molly Hemingway at the Federalist and she got back to me and said they would publish it. And then it was, well, after that, I figured, uh, let's, let's see what else people want to hear. <laughs> nice. And, uh, just kind of, kind of snowballed from there. So how, do, do they pay you by the article? Is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think, I think that's how it is with most places. Um, uh, they have staff writers too, but, but a lot of the work is freelance, so it's uh, it, it it's nice in a way because it I, I write what I want. Like sometimes when I'm when you're on staff at a place and they say we need somebody to write about X, Y, and Z, and all right, I'll write. It. I don't care, but you know I'll write it because it's right. it's the job. But uh, when I'm freelancing, I just if something seems interesting to me, seems like something that isn't being talked about or is being talked about in a way that I think isn't really covering the whole issue. I just write it and then sometimes people buy it and sometimes they don't. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of freedom. At first I was doing both at the same time. I was still practicing law and doing this cause it's not, uh, not easy to just jump full time into, uh, into writing, especially when nobody knows who you are. But, uh, imagine. yeah, lately it's just, I've just been editing and writing exclusively. And so when you submit a, an article, I mean, what, what's your, what's your score rate? As far as what percentage do they take? I mean, it's pretty good now. Um, in the beginning, I mean, it was, you know, 50-50. But now I think I know what, what people like. And then people also have, have worked with me. And, you know, you get a reputation. That, okay, this is going to be a decent product. You know, it's not not a crazy rant. It's not going to be somebody who's difficult to work with. So, you know, you build up sort of a reputation. And, and that, I think, kind of just... You know, uh, like I said, it snowballs. It, it it builds up on itself. So I usually, if I write something, somebody will take it. It might not always be the first people I pitch it to, mm-hmm. but usually it's something that can get somewhere. I I started my website years ago. That's kylesnaman dot com. Uh, mostly because I figured I would need a place to put all the stuff I couldn't sell. You know, I figured if I was writing it, somebody ought to read it. But then there wasn't that much of that, so I just mostly linked to stuff that somebody else already paid for. Mm. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about the growing up years. What what was it like to grow up, Kyle Salmon? Where where, where are you from? What tell us about your parents, your family? Uh, well, I grew up in Northeast Philly, which is uh, it's part of the city of Philadelphia, but it's it's more suburban feeling than downtown. It wasn't big skyscrapers. It was mostly two and three story houses, uh, twins, rows. Uh, singles uh, row house they call it a townhome townhome in other places we call it a row house in philly um yeah but that, those sorts of you know just a residential neighborhood um unlike most of philly it was a politically mixed area and still is so you get you get democrats and republicans and mm. independents and i think that was a sort of a different experience than most philadelphians get in every other part of the city pretty much it's it's all democrat so there was that now i went to when I was in school, I was usually one of the only Republicans because that's just how it was among young Philadelphians in public school. Mm. But I, I think that uh, 
that was kind of it was kind of formative in a way. I, th- I think it made me a better writer because it made me have to explain myself all the time. Right. So from a young age, you knew you were conservative or you knew you stood out in that way? I think so. I mean, I remember I remember when Bush campaigned in, let's say, 92. He made a stop in Northeast Philly and we went out to see him. And then I was 12. So I didn't really know. I knew it was the president coming to town. So, you know, we my parents wanted to go see his plane land at northeast airport but uh i liked them at the time i don't know if i fully understood every issue that was going on for sure um you know what was, what was up in 92 nafta and, and that sort of thing uh, i mean i'm still not sure i understand all of that today but it um i felt on the conservative side of things and then by the time i got to high school i really did and you know maybe i was more libertarian then than i am now because that's It'll sound like I'm insulting libertarians, but that's what teenagers are. It's a more teenage <laughs> attitude, you know. It's like, right. Hey, man, I'm an individual. I shouldn't be tied down by anything, you know. But, but I still, I mean, I still love liberty. Uh, but definitely, that I was probably more on that side of things in those days. So your parents, Republicans too, or? Um, they were Democrats when I was little and Republicans when I was older. And in Philly, a lot of people are registered Democrat because that's, we have closed primaries in Pennsylvania. So if. If you want to be able to vote for who's going to be the mayor, who's going to be the district attorney, and you want it to be in the election that matters, a lot of people are registered Democrat. Um, my parents had, were both at various points, and I, I don't even know what they are now. But um, my dad's views are a lot like mine. I think he and I tend to see eye to eye on things. And so I, I, I became a committee man for our our Republican board leader, which is like the uh, the guy who hands out the sample ballot. Uh-huh. and gathers the signatures to get people on the ballot. You know, there's, um, right now, there's 1,703 precincts, I think, in Philadelphia. Each of those has two committee men, or committee persons, we say now. So, you can, this is a very, a very low-level position. But my name was on the primary ballot, which I thought was very cool. And it yeah. was, you know, it was unopposed, but that's all right. Especially at such a young age. So, what about, what about family life? Were you guys, uh, go to church are you religious or yeah i was raised like? i was raised catholic uh, my family's irish italian german uh my dad's from philly my mom's from new york and uh yeah the whole whole family was catholic i yeah we were raised in the church um i'm episcopalian now since i married an episcopalian and we thought we should both be going to the same place on sundays mm-hmm. um but yeah the neighborhood was mostly catholic i mean most most everybody I grew up with, I had a few, a few Protestant friends and a few Jewish friends, but mostly everybody in our neighborhood was Catholic. It was, it was a Catholic neighborhood. So you had that sort of cross-cutting, what do the political science call, uh, scientists call it, cross-cutting cleavage or something, but the neighborhood might be Democratic or Republican, a mix, but it, you all mm-hmm. went to the same church, basically. Yeah, and 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 a lot of people went too. It was, you know, we talk about on this show a lot about the decline of mainstream religion, and but yeah, I can definitely see it in folks back home. I mean, everybody went, not every Sunday, but people were there. You know, you were a member of something typically. Yeah, and I imagine it wasn't as political for that reason, because since everyone went, no, I mean the church was always into pro life politics as long as I can remember, but they didn't really. It wasn't that much. I mean, there were always those nuns who protested executions. Um, but it wasn't a political thing to say you belong to a church. Um, 
you, you wouldn't know what party the person in the pew next to you was. You know, it was, it was, it was everybody. Mm-hmm. All right. So you say you became interested in politics at a pretty early age. That's, that's kind of cool. Any, any other pieces of your conservative origin story? Any, anything that stood out to you or <laughs> so you went to see the president. That's pretty cool. Uh, as you have like a high school class where you were the, you said that you were the standout conservative. So did you take a class where you had to debate most of the class or? Well, I, when I took a uh, AP government, there was definitely a lot of those kind of debates and, and U.S. history too. But I have to say all my teachers and were just about all of them were liberal Democrats, but they were really all pretty open-minded people. And when they, when there was a class discussion, when we were, especially in government class, we're talking about government and, and politics and it was never, never that chilling atmosphere or maybe I, I mean, I, I don't think I was especially bold or anything, but they welcomed open discussion. And, uh, I really, I had some great teachers in that respect, it sort of thing. It, I think a lot of people are still like that now, but the ones you hear about are, are the sort of like, especially in colleges, everything is so locked down and mm-hmm. don't disagree. But I disagreed with everybody. And that's, yeah. I mean, I think, I think high school kids tend to do that in other ways too, just because they're, you know, growing rebellious and they think they're grown and they think they have the answers. But yeah. I, I, the answers I was given wasn't, weren't the same as a lot of my classmates, but I, I thought it was always pretty respectful. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. All right, so where'd you go to college, and and how was that experience for you as far as politics? Um, I went to St. Joe's in Philly, um, and I only applied to Philly schools. I did not really want to live away. I, I don't remember my reasoning at the time, but <laughs> I uh, I wasn't ready to leave home. And uh, St. Joe's was good. I learned a lot. Um, got a history degree there, and I you know I still think about a lot of those lessons. St. Joe's kind of focused on having a pretty big core curriculum that was really about the well-rounded student. And I, th- I think that's good. I mean, I didn't take hard math classes, but I did take math classes. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't take science that was, you know, I wasn't going to do science after I did those courses. But I learned about it. And, you know, I, th- I think that's I think that's important. It was also, it was the first time I ever went to a, a Catholic school, too. I was always in public school back, you know, in, in the grades, you know, one through 12. So I thought that was interesting, although it's uh, Jesuit schools are, mm, they're Catholic, but they're, they're not in your face about it. So you're a history major and I've, it's always been my observation that if you're political science or your history, basically you either want to be a professor or you want to be a politician. <laughs> was that true uh-huh. for you? Um, I wanted to be a lawyer, but I, Looking back, I can't tell you why. Um, I never wanted to be a history teacher until after I was a lawyer, and I thought maybe it would have been a good idea. Uh, I was always interested in the law, and I, and I still think the way I approach law involves history a lot. I mean, maybe that's why originalism is an attractive philosophy to me, because it's, it's what what happened and how history influences our laws and what how people understood things and why. But even beyond that, like why we passed a law or why the law is the way it is has always been probably more interesting to me than the actual practice of it today. But at the time, yeah, I, I always wanted to go to law school. That was my plan from early on. I also knew I wanted to major in history just because I liked it and I knew it it was a reasonable degree to take to law school. 
Yeah, Again, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure how much thought went into any of this. And you're making me think about, you know, what was going, what was going through my mind <laughs> no, at that's 18 right. or I, 19. You know? I said either politician or professor, but obviously the overwhelming majority of history and poli sci go to uh, go to law school next. But so did you go to law school right right after undergrad? Then yeah, I went, I went straight through. And at that point, I only applied to schools out of Philly because I wanted to get out. Uh, so I went to uh, George Washington down in D.C. and uh, spent three years there. I don't know what what can you say about law school. It was I liked learning it. I don't know if the profession is perfect for me, but it <laughs> the study of it was really interesting. Well, uh, so what's your what's your reflections on law school for those uh, listeners who maybe are undergrads now or are uh, aspiring lawyers and go uh, want to go to law school? What's uh, what are your thoughts, takeaways, and advice? Well, I I'd, I'd say if you can go to like a top ten school, do that. That will get you a lot of open doors. Beyond that, go someplace where you live so you can actually make those connections that'll get you a job afterwards. That's the part I missed out on. And then also studying law, doing well on the tests, writing papers, is a different thing than what you're going to get into when you actually practice. Yeah, yeah, and being good with people is a much bigger part of it than you would think. I mean, generating business is such a huge part of Well, if you work for the government, it's different, but if you work for a private firm, bringing in the business uh, covers a multitude of other deficiencies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's, it's a different, it's a different thing than I, I think I was under the impression that if you just, it was one of those things, if I write the best paper, or, you know, I write the best brief, then I'll be the guy and they'll give me a lot of money. Uh, it's not quite like that. They'll sometimes give you a lot of money, but sometimes not. It's, 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 it's not, um, it's not like you see on TV. Yeah. But there are many who enjoy it. I just really wasn't one of them. So I imagine you were pretty lone conservative at, uh, among the students and certainly among the faculty at, at GW. Yeah, I mean, we had a Federal Society chapter, but I didn't know anybody in it. It was very small. I actually went to uh, American Constitution Society meetings, which is the liberal version (laughs) of the Federal Society. Um, And I was conservative, but I just, uh, some of my friends were in it. So, you know, know, all right. And there was a girl I was trying to talk to and, you know, the the usual good decision making (laughs) of the 22 year old. But uh, yeah, there weren't too many of us. There were, there were a few. Um, because GW does kind of take in from all over the country. It's not just uh, DC people who go there. But uh, yeah, DC. I met some folks there who were just very different from folks back home. Like I, I knew a guy who, from his first year, said he wanted to be a lobbyist. I never heard that in Philadelphia before. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, <laughs> but and he became one. I, I think he was pretty good at it. Um, but you know, just different experiences. Uh, it's broadening. All right, so first job, you graduate from law school, and then what? I temped for a while, and then I got a job uh, at a firm in Reading doing uh, trust and estates law, which is kind of what I wanted to do. I actually was halfway through an LLM at that point trying to improve my job prospects. And that actually, I'll tell you, that the uh, LLM in taxation is a worthwhile degree. I actually learned a ton about mm-hmm. practicing tax law because a lot of those um, – a lot of those master's courses are in law are kind of really aimed at practitioners. It's not, it's not, you learn the theory cause you have to, I mean, to, to practice, you must have a, the theory of like how taxation works and, and that sort of thing. But, but they get you into it. Um, how the, how the calculations work, how the rates work. And, and 
really very useful. So I, I did, I was about halfway done that when I got hired and I finished it while I was working as a trust and estates lawyer, just, uh, you know, drafting wills, trusts, administering estates. Interesting. So that the LLM was at George Washington also? No, that was at Temple here in Philly. Oh, okay. So you, yeah, closer to home. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, so from there, you you gave us kind of a sense for how you got into writing and and uh, kind of the conservative thinking uh, ecosphere. So I guess one question I have is, what is conservatism, and what does it what does it mean to you? Let's 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 talk a little bit about your kind of conservative philosophy. What is conservatism? Yeah, that's what we're that's what we've been trying to figure out for these ninety five episodes, right? But. I, it's uh, hard to get a handle on, but I think I think through our work here, we I've I've just been exposed to a lot of different ideas of what it means to be conservative. And people hear the word conservative, and they think it means you know to keep things the same, to keep what we have. When it's clearly much more than that, and you know, just like liberal doesn't really have that connection to liberty that it used to. You know, it's these words take on a life of their own. I mean, I I think we're building towards a new fusionism especially what I've, the way I've been thinking about it lately is, is that the old fusionism, like we talked about in the Frank Meyer episodes, you know, we had the traditionalist conservative and the libertarian kind of joining forces in this new Republican party that was kind of rising from the ashes of the new deal. These two disparate forces, what united them was fear of the communist menace, basically the wanting to win the cold war, keep the United States engaged in the international sphere, keep communism from taking over the world with this, this thing that they both hated more than they hated each other really drew them together. And then after the cold war ended, you know, he's sort of where, why are we still doing this? Does it make sense? And like every few months you read one of these media stories about the Republican civil war that's coming. And I mean, we read all those for decades now. I think there is a sort of a new coalition building and it's the same thing that's going to keep it together is fear of China. And it's not just that we need to fear that, communism itself as a as a uh, philosophy and ideology but the chinese twist on it also is extremely profitable so it's you know it's it's endangering a lot of our world economy you know at least when we were, when we were fighting the soviets they weren't taking our jobs you know they they were barely holding on to their own jobs like the place was a basket case yeah, they had they had the big missiles and the, the big army but they didn't have the big factory. Well, they had big factories, but they didn't produce anything anyone wanted. So and it's a new threat, and it's it's still the human rights threat that old communism was, and it's still the you know, genocidal menace that communist China was under Mao. You know, and now they're genociding at different people. But I think my vision of conservatism involves that still that traditionalist element, and it's united with I'm not sure what a, I don't want to say communitarian. Because that's sometimes people just say that as sort of a nice word for socialist. It's not that, but just more of the community building, local focused, kind of old world conservatism mixed in with that particularly American embrace of liberty and and, and free markets to the extent that those two are compatible with each other. So it's how what I am as a conservative, I'm still figuring out, but I think it's it's <laughs> it's trending in that that's a long answer to a short question, but it's a, it's trending in that direction of of this new thing that's coming together and how are we gonna 
balance these interests and how do I balance them in my own thoughts? How do people balance them as a nation? I, I don't know, but I think that's, that's kind of where I'm headed. That's interesting. So it's a new fusionism and it sounds to me like you mean to say you have the, so the original fusionism was this idea of kind of traditional conservatism with a libertarianism. You think the libertarianism, if I understand you correctly, you're, you're basically saying you think that is working, will, will still survive, but, it, but as a, it won't be a pillar like it once was. So it'll be more of a focus on communitarian thinking. And is that, is that do I understand you correctly? Then? I think so. I mean, I think they were, they were meant to be equal partners in the old fusionism, but well, we won the libertarian victories. There was a lot of deregulation. Tax rates came down. Um, not, I'm not saying that we're a libertarian utopia now. There's government's still too big. There's taxes are still too high. That, you know, there's bureaucracy that's a and red tape that's a mess. But I think a lot of stuff. I mean, if you look at where we started, coming out of World War II and the New Deal, where everything was government controlled, every, you know, we've we won a lot of those victories. You know, with Reagan and and bush and 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 even under trump there was a ton of deregulation that happened that people aren't talking about but it helped the economy and it, and it helped people get jobs but at the same time the the culture war was basically lost you know we started out the fusionist period mm-hmm. where the culture was the dominant culture and then we ended it with the counterculture as the dominant culture and and what used to be mainstream culture in retreat <clears throat> so I think it's not that we're like kicking out the libertarians because I think that still has to be a part of it because I think American conservatism will always involve a libertarian streak, but just, we've already, we've already booked a lot of those wins. Mm -hmm. And while there's still some we need to keep fighting for, I think rebuilding the culture, if I don't think liberty can exist without a, a a strong culture Mm -hmm. without, you know, like, uh, the thing John Adams said about our our form of government is only fit for a moral people. I I think that we have to figure out some choices that are going to maybe refocus our efforts on rebuilding a lot of those sort of local institutions that were have been falling apart for years. Yeah. So how do you evaluate kind of the not just your own thinking, but if you were just looking at the landscape? What is the current state of conservatism? Is it moving that direction? I mean, we we hear a lot, and you and I have talked about this multiple times, that the Republican Party is becoming more working class every election. You, you're you getting more uh, working class whites, of course, but also more working class uh, Hispanics and black men. And do you, do you think that's the future? Do you think that's, that's where we're heading? Or, you know, you and I started this podcast at least in part, for me at least, I, thinking about, you know, the mainstream media would say that anything President Trump did, for example, is ultra conservative. And right. that didn't strike me as quite right. You know, yeah. whether whether I agreed or disagreed with, with a particular move, much, you know, many things he did during his presidency, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call conservative necessarily. And so is the future of conservative more populist? Is it more, I mean, obviously... If, it's, if it becomes more working class and partially it, it seems that if you have uh, less of a, an emphasis on libertarian, uh, on liberty, 
uh, libertarian style liberty. And we know there's less of an emphasis on, on the war against communism. And mm. I mean, there, there is a, it is pretty striking how, how often the, the loudest never Trump voices were neocons <laughs> mm. and uh, very much conservative in the foreign policy space. Um, is, was, was really their driving force. But anyway, I'm babbling a little here, but um, how, how do you see the landscape and, and the future of conservatives? Yeah, I don't, I don't see, I feel like, it, I mean, I guess to answer that, let's, if we go back to 94, it felt like the Republicans had all the ideas. It felt like the Democrats were stale and were just drinking the dregs of New Deal, Great Society formulas. And not really coming up with anything new, just kind of keeping in place these rickety structures. When when Newt Gingrich and, and the House Republicans came out with the contract with America, this was, you know, this was revolutionary stuff. It felt like it felt like we had the ideas for once. We weren't just saying keep things the same, standing athwart history. We were saying here's some reforms that we can really make. Here's some stuff that is not good anymore, was never good, or has outlived its usefulness. <clears throat> I don't really see that energy on our side anymore, but I don't particularly see it on the other side either. It seems like we're, b- both parties are kind of bereft of ideas. I mean, the, the Democrats have their new ideas are all just old ideas: socialism and you know, state health care. Well, know, their innovation know. is uh, the number of of identities and genders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know that's that's new at least. <laughs> There's a new one every day. But uh, we, yeah, we. Uh, so I don't I don't know what I don't know what the future can bring in that in in the sense of ideology because I don't really see a lot of big ideology being discussed not by the people who are actually elected guys like us will talk about it people write in magazines and things but I I, I don't know it doesn't it doesn't feel like there's a big intellectual tumult going on well so on that note I mean who do you see as conservative thought leaders. I mean, who, who do you read? Who do you watch? You know, who are three or four people that, that you really look, look to, or at least thinks worth listening to? I guess on the national scale, I, I like Charlie Cook at national review. I, I always read his stuff and David Harsani there who used to be at, at the Federalist and is at national review. Now I listen to Ben Dominish's podcast. I think he's, he's got interesting guests and always has a interesting take on things. And he's, he's a, uh, he's thoughtful. He's, he's, been out ahead of some stuff that I now can see, but he, I, I like, I think he was against the Iraq war a lot earlier than most conservatives. Uh, mm. And uh, I tend to think he was right now. So I, those guys are all pretty interesting. Um, trying to think. Any, any politicians that, that you think are thought leaders? Well, I'm not sure about thought leaders. I mean, there's, there's guys doing things. DeSantis is doing things. He seems interesting. He seems, he seems like he's trying to capture that Trumpism without Trump vibe. You know, taking uh-huh. the the best parts of populist conservatism without the mean tweets. Um, I was into Josh Hawley for a while. I I don't know about after he uh, voted against certifying the election because I think that was I I heard him discuss Pennsylvania election law and he was just wrong about it and that <laughs> this and he went to a better law school than we did so. Yeah. Uh, he he does know better, but that's that's the sort of thing. I mean, it's it's tough to to hold up a politician because they have competing interests, and sometimes they have to say stuff that you, they probably don't mean. 
Um, I like Pat Toomey. He's retiring. <laughs> it's a tragedy. I, I am the biggest Toomey fan. I, I absolutely I think he's one of the best that we have. So I'm, I'm sad to see him go. He's one of the. I think he might be the only senator we've elected in Pennsylvania that I was proud to vote for. Like I voted for. I voted for Arlen Specter, but I, I always felt bad about it afterwards. And those are the only two Republicans since I've been old enough to vote. Santorum. Oh yeah, Santorum. I did vote for Santorum. Yeah. You know what he? He was into some of the populist conservatism back when I was not that, and I thought he was a little nutty. I think he was maybe seeing some things uh, that that were coming down the pike. I mean, maybe him from being west, being from Western Pennsylvania, he saw more of the Rust Belt Midwest problems that we in in Philadelphia weren't seeing. Um, yeah. yeah, Santorum. He was. Uh, I I was. I'm glad to have voted for him. That's true. All right. So you and I have been on this journey for a little over three years. Why did you decide to to do this with? do the work on this project with me, conservative minds. Well, I mean, you, you, uh, it was your idea, I think. Right. And then your, our, uh, common acquaintance, Carl suggested me for the position of co-host and we didn't know each other. A lot, a lot of people have told me they think they thought we knew each other for years, but we, we've only met in person once. Right, it's um, kind of ironic, but I, I feel like we're we're close friends. But we've yeah, well, seen each we, other in person once. We talk a lot, but yeah, it's 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 weird. But uh, you had this idea, and I th- I felt like we were both sort of struggling with the same thing. You know, what is everything shifting? What is conservatism? And and maybe it's a maybe it's a conservative's impulse, or maybe it's a lawyer's impulse to go in the books and say, you know, let's let's do that because I I think. And when we when we first talked about it, I, uh, the way you put it, as I remember, is that nobody's doing books. Nobody's yeah. a lot of people are talking to each other on podcasts, but nobody's really getting into source material and and doing the heavy lifting. And at that point, I hadn't read most of these books, and I wanted to learn more. And I think it's it's really informed the way I write and the way yeah. I think, just because we've got all this information and, and people explaining things and and talking about things I hadn't considered or considered, but not in the in the right way. So I, I thought I thought this would be an education. You know, um it'd be like a like a grad school course where you have to read the book every week. And uh you know, I I've also always felt that a podcast with two people is better because we make sure we, I, I feel like I, I have to do the reading or else I'll be <laughs> let it if I'll let you Absolutely. down. If it was if it was just me, I I could I'd probably put out four episodes a year because Absolutely. you know it it's easy to put off your own stuff, but yeah, it just felt like a, it felt like a way to get a like a free education in the history of American conservatism. And I think that's what we've been doing, and and hopefully we've been able to convey some of that to the folks listening. Yeah, I totally agree, and and I apologize. I was probably such a taskmaster that first year, saying, "No, we got <laughs> we have to have a we do got to do a book a week. We got to put these things out." And now now we've slowed down to a more uh, human pace, but <laughs> humane pace. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to, to me, it was just a, a, a missing piece out there. And I felt the same way, not having the foundation that I felt like I needed or wanted. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, well, if we're going to do this journey, we might as well like do it together. And I always find it to be super fun and interesting to talk about the ideas. And you, you always want somebody to talk to. So in some ways, it was 
it was uh you just doing me a huge favor to talk through the ideas with me and and at this point well three years ago i think we at least i would have said like i have a i have a you know i have a i have a good idea about what you know conservative intellectual history and now I look back and I'm like, man, I didn't know squat. <laughs> we, yeah, we I know. learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's really even some of the the basic texts. I mean, you hear people talk about Edmund Burke all the time, and nobody reads them. You know, so we we read, you know, we read some of Adam Smith and 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 those founding fathers. I think that's so important because people read the quotes. You know, like that's all online is is quotes. You know, two For lines. Sure. You know, sure. next you put see it on Facebook next to a guy's picture. There's a quote. Okay. What's behind it? Now we we finally have to get into it. I think it it makes a huge difference in understanding where these threads of ideology come from and and how they're all been woven together over the years. Yeah. All right. So then, uh, last question for for all those out there: What have been your favorite books? Or let's put it another way: Which episodes would you recommend if you had two or three episodes to recommend to to new listeners? Man, I. Uh... I like the Arn Cast book. I thought that was really interesting. Um, he, He's—I don't know if you'd call him populist. He's definitely working class conservative. That he's got that think tank now that's just starting up, and it. Uh, what was it called? The Once and Future Worker, I think, was his book. Really interesting. I don't—I don't know if I'm on board with everything he said, but he's thinking about things in different ways, and that's kind of. I like to come across a new idea. And right. there's not that many of them. I mean, a lot of what we've been fighting about are the same fights we've had since 1848 or 1776 or, or wherever, you know. He had some twists on on, on things that I, I thought were interesting. Um, yeah, what else? I liked, I, I did like reading some of the the books from the left that we've gotten into. Because, again, you hear people talk about critical race theory. And people argue about what it is. So I think it's good that we read the book or at least one of the articles that found the foundational articles by Kimberly Crenshaw. I thought that's good. Mm-hmm. I think it's good we read the Communist Manifesto because, you know, people talk about Marx and you see memes with Marx. But what did he write? Well, we read it. It's not that long. And it's uh, it's I think it's good to read these things, really get into it. Um, I, love, I like Ross Douthat's book, too, Decadent Society. So that was really he's a good writer. I mean, that's, that's yeah. some of these guys, you read the the book and you're like, all right, I mean, I'm, I don't want to say which ones are bad because some of them been on the show, but some, you know, some of them, you, you read the text and you're like, I get what you're saying, but this is not written in a way that's really engaging at all. Douthat, I thought, I think has good ideas. Any, any can write. Yeah. And that It yeah. made it kind of a pleasure to read. Um, Gertrude Himmelfarb's book, One Nation, Two Cultures. I, I think about that one a lot. Um, I think about Neil Postman's book too, Amusing Ourselves to Death, pretty often. Like every time people complain about cable news, mm-hmm. like you don't know the half of it. It's just, just about how we move from a written culture to a, a spoken TV culture. That's, yeah. I mean, that's that's one of those things that you're so far in it, you need you need to kind of step back and look and say, oh yeah, we didn't we didn't used to have this. You know, we used to talk differently. So that, I, I thought that was a real eye opener and that's something you don't get every day in political books. I mean, you, you know, how there's a lot of these political books, especially the ones that are really about the current moment. They're, they're okay. And then they're, you know, within a year you're like, eh, all right, it's, 
There's nothing yeah. really here. But, kind of stale, yeah. And that, you see them for a dollar at Barnes & Noble next year, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll read some of those, too. <laughs> yeah, we will. I mean, we have, but, you know. Um, yeah, I think those are the highlights. I'm probably missing some. Uh, Charles Murray's Coming Apart was good. Yeah. yeah. All right, Kyle Salmon. It's great to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, I, I value our friendship. Thanks for joining on this journey and i've had a lot of fun it's good to get to know you and uh yeah let's uh let's do some more of these interviews and get to know some people yeah well we can return to favor next episode and the folks will get to learn about you too absolutely all right that's it that's kyle salmon catch us next time